Hello and welcome to another edition of the Chad's Chatterings Podcast. I am your host, Chad Maples, and in today's episode, we will look at the movie entitled The Village to see what applications may apply. That's right, this is the At The Movies version of the podcast, so I hope you enjoy it. So sit tight and stay tuned. You're now listening to the Chad's Chatterings Podcast. In 2004, M. Night Shyamalan released a movie entitled The Village. Now, if you've not seen the movie, I'll do my best not to spoil it for you. But then again, the movie has been out for about 19 years now. And if you haven't had a desire to see the movie yet, I figure you won't mind if I spoil it for you anyway. The story is about some residents in a small, isolated 19th century Pennsylvania village called Covington. And they all live in fear of the, quote, those we do not speak of, nameless humanoid creatures that live in the surrounding woods. The villagers have constructed a large barrier of oil lanterns, and they have a watchtower that is constantly staffed. And as the story unfolds, you discover that it is the elders in town that are behind the mysterious creatures that live in the woods. They have scary costumes that they'll wear on certain nights to scare the young people. And they create loud noises in the woods to to frighten the young people from leaving the village. Now, this is all because the elders believe that money and success are evil and they are trying to prevent the youth from venturing out on their own. And so they use a variety of scare tactics to keep them inside the village. The truth of the matter is that the people live in the 20th century, not the 19th century, and that the elders of the town have also made special arrangements with the local government for them to have a no-fly zone over the village. This would further give the youth in the village the illusion that they were living in the 19th century as they were unable to see planes flying overhead. Everyone in the village lived in fear. The elders lived in fear of losing their young people to a modern secular society where they could grow and prosper and be successful. Furthermore, if the youth were allowed to leave the village and they did become successful, there was a fear that they would not return to the village and that the village would eventually become extinct. The young people lived in fear of leaving the village because of the nameless humanoid creatures that supposedly lived in the woods which in reality was nothing more than a lie that was told by the elders. And since the youth in the town respected the elders, they didn't question that the monsters didn't exist. But as I reflect on this fictional story of the village, it is somewhat of an unfortunate parable in regards to certain aspects of Christianity. Now, there are many people in Christianity today who seem to live in fear. The older generation lives in fear of losing their young people, probably in some respects to a secular world where they'll they'll leave the church altogether and go into the world and they'll have a desire for the world more than God and they'll never return to church. But there's also a fear that perhaps they will have a different view of Christianity that goes against traditional thought. And sometimes in an effort to protect the young people, the older generation creates a sheltered environment. They are encouraged to search the scriptures to confirm their faith, 
but it is with the understanding that they should not go beyond what they have been traditionally taught through the years. And the younger generation lives in fear of disappointing the older generation. And there have been some who have questioned and challenged certain traditions in Christianity, but there have also been some who are content to accept certain traditions the way they are. But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, as Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. I remember when I first moved to Kansas in December of 2005, I began to preach for the Norwich Church of Christ. And if you don't know where Norwich is, it is west of Viola and south of Cheney. I'm pretty sure that clears it up for you. But it is actually about 30 miles southwest of Wichita. And I promise if you type in Norwich, Kansas in Google Maps, you'll be able to find it. But after I moved there and I started to become acquainted with some of the local preachers and the other preachers in surrounding areas, and one of the preachers that I reached out to belonged to a group that we in the Church of Christ would call the, quote, anti-brethren. This was because they were against supporting orphanages and they were also against having kitchens and, and food in their building. This man wrote a very scathing article about one specific Church of Christ that was offering cookies and ice cream at the end of their vacation Bible school, also known as VBS. Now, granted, the cookies and ice cream were only offered when the VBS activities had ended and the kids were on their way out the door to meet their parents and they were on their way home. But this gentleman saw that the cookies and ice cream was a way to lure the kids into church, and he was fearful that the kids would only come to the VBS just for the snacks and not come there to learn about Christ. And I suspect he also lived in fear that the other church had somewhat of an unfair advantage as it may have attracted more young people to that particular congregation than than his because his congregation was not able to offer food and snacks at their vacation Bible school. So I reached out to this gentleman and I kindly asked him to explain his point of view and and why he felt so strongly about it. And the conversation started off with a very kind exchange of words and as we go got further into the conversation we started having our disagreements uh, specifically in regards to having a kitchen uh, and food in the church building. For me, it was a matter of opinion. For him, it was a matter of doctrine, and it was just wrong. The conversation finally came to an end when he called me a liberal, which nobody had ever done that before. I'd never been called a liberal in my life. Uh, and then he also told me that I was, quote, going to hell if I continued to disagree with his specific point of view. A few years later, while I was preaching in Norwich, still there in that small town, a man came to visit us from the Methodist Church one Sunday morning. Now, you have to remember at this time, and probably still even now, the population of Norwich was around 500 people, and the town itself was one mile squared. Yeah, I'm, I'm serious. It is one mile squared. But in this small town of 500 people that is one mile squared, there are four different religious organizations. You have the Church of Christ, the Christian Church, the Baptist Church, and the Methodist Church. 
So I began to talk with this gentleman who was visiting us from the Methodist Church, and I had a few Bible studies with him, but eventually he went back to the Methodist Church. Now, I later found out that he stopped coming to the Church of Christ because his family and friends were at the Methodist Church, and he seemed to live in fear of what they would think if he decided to leave and attend somewhere else. Maybe you or someone you know is in a situation like this man. They're encouraged to be active with church activities. They're encouraged to search the scriptures. But as they search the scriptures, they are told that they are to confirm their faith, but not to go against traditional thought or what they have been taught traditionally. However, this is how the restoration movement started many years ago as several people started studying the scriptures and challenging certain things that had been taught throughout the years. There may be some people that you encounter who you know and love dearly and respect dearly who tell you that if you are not a part of a specific religious organization, that heaven may be at stake and that you may not be going to heaven if you are not associated with one specific religious organization. And as I think of all of this, I, I can't help but ask the, myself the question that has been asked throughout the years. And that question is this. If you were to die tonight and they asked you why you should be allowed to enter into heaven, what would you say? And if I answer that or if anyone else answers that in the first person, then we've immediately got it all wrong. We can't stand there and say, well, because I did this or because I did that or I continue to do so many good things in my life. That, that is the wrong answer. The only proper and correct answer is in the third person. Because he, because what Christ has done for all of us. And it is only because of what Christ has done on the cross that any of us even have a chance to enter into heaven. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are being saved, it is the power of God. And without the preaching of the cross, and without reminding ourselves about the cross and what Christ did for us, we will quickly revert to faith plus works as the grounds of our salvation. I like what Alistair Begg said in regards to this as he talked about the thief on the cross. And I'll summarize it the best way I can. He said, you think about the thief on the cross. And he says, I can't wait to find that guy and ask him, how did things work out for you at the pearly gates? He said, because one moment you're on the cross, you're, you're a guilty thief given the death penalty. At one point, you were, you're cussing Christ out with your friend. You, you change your mind at the last minute, of course, but you, you don't, we don't know anything about you other than we don't know whether you've been in a Bible study. Everything we know about you is negative, except for your very last words in life. And yet, you made it. He said, how did you make it? He said, that's what the angel must have said when he first arrived in heaven. He says, what are you doing here? And then the thief says, well, I don't know. And he says, well, what do you mean you don't know? He says, well, I don't know because I don't know. <laughs> and so the angel kind of has this, this dumbfounded look on his face and he's trying to figure this out. And he goes, well, hold on a minute. Let me get my supervisor angel. <laughs> and he 
he gets a supervisor angel and they come in and they're looking at this guy and his name just appeared in the book of life. They don't know how or why his name just finally came up in the book. They don't know why this guilty thief on the cross is standing at the gates of heaven. And finally, out of frustration, they finally ask him, on what basis are you here? And he says, the man on the middle cross said that I could come. And that is the only answer that any of us could ever give. And if I don't remind myself of what Christ did for all of us, then I start to trust myself and trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. And as soon as you go there, it'll lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals with the deepest depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance and the pride of man that says, I have this figured out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my soul can be counted as free because God chose to look upon his sufferings and pardon me. And we can know that we are not saved by our good works. And we are not saved as a result of our professions, but we are saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. And after Christ rose from the dead, and just before he ascended into heaven, he made salvation so very, very simple with his final words to his disciples. And I don't know why the religious world wants to make this so complicated because it is so, so very easy to understand. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, he that believes and is baptized will be saved and he who does not believe will be condemned. Now keep in mind that baptism into Christ would not be possible without the cross of Christ itself. Jesus said, if you believe and you are baptized, then you will be saved. Those who do not believe will obviously not take the next step to be baptized. Now, later in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we see that 3,000 people were baptized after they heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost. And verse 47 tells us that the Lord added to the church daily those who should be saved. Peter would later tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So it is God, not man, who adds people to his church, and the Lord knows exactly who they are. Our salvation is not dictated by a committee or by popular vote or by traditional thought. It is not granted or taken away just because of someone else's judgment of our sincerity. But our salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This concludes this particular episode of the Chaz Chatterings Podcast. Thank you once again for tuning in. Make sure you like, follow, or subscribe to the podcast so that you can know when new episodes become available. I try to release one at least once a month if I can. 
But I thank you once again for tuning in and we'll see you next time.